How's everybody doing tonight? All right? Just okay? I mean, you're here not like away for the weekend somewhere on Labor Day. So I guess, you know, you could be doing different or be, could be on vacation, but I'm glad you're here with us. We are going to end our sermon series and we've been in a series called False Gods and we've been talking all about how we have this tendency, the human heart has this tendency to just make idols all the time. We have this tendency to wrap our hearts, hang all of our hope for our happiness and meaning around created things instead of the creator. And we talked about the good things in our lives. Generally, it's good things in our lives that we put first, front and center, before anything else in our lives. And we talked about family, which is like amazing, right? But also a source of a lot of drama, a lot of issues, a lot of pain. And yet we talked about how we put so much into our family Sometimes we get enmeshed with our family. We don't know where we stop and the other person in our family begins. And we can idolize our kids. We can idolize people in our family, parents, all types of folks. We talked about it with sex. We talked about it with ourselves, our pride. We've talked about it with money, we've talked about it with politics, with race. It's really just anything, any created thing. When we make that thing a God to us, when we make that thing the thing that's gonna make us happy, it disappoints us. It will not deliver. But what we're going to do tonight is a little different as we close this series. We're going to talk about how Christ actually overcomes these counterfeits. We're going to talk about how Christ overcomes these false gods. So let me pray for us. God, open us up as we read your word now. As we open your word up, open us up to what it has to say to us. Challenge us. Allow us to hear from you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. We're looking at 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, and you can follow along with me on the screen behind me. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world the lust of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions, or some translations, the the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away. In other words, the world with its desires, with which its cravings, with what it wants, it's passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. Everybody say forever. forever. You guys know the song, This Is My Father's World? 
This is my father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees and skies and seas. His hands hand the wonders wrought. Now there's this other song that you might have heard of too. But if you haven't, I'm going to read it for you. It's called, This World Is Not My Home. <laughs> just to give, just like, we sing both of these in church. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh, Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then, Lord, what will I do? The angel beckons me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. See, this passage that we just read in 1 John, it presents a tension, a real tension, just like those two songs. They present a real tension. Because the author of this book, John, is the one who wrote, do not love the world. He's also the one who recorded Jesus' private conversation. Probably Jesus told him about it. The night this guy came to him named Nicodemus, and Jesus told Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So which one is it? Which one is it? Part of the confusion that we have is, first of all, we got to define what the idea of world is. You know, I'm from Northeast Philly. There's this word we use, John. It means everything imaginable, right? John could be like, my girlfriend, John could be like the place we're going to go. John could be like, you know, hand me that John and you're trying to get like a screwdriver to fix something. It could mean literally anything. And at all times and in all languages, words have a range of meaning. Although few words have quite the range <laughs> as John. <laughs> that particular word has a dangerously wide <laughs> range of meaning. But in the Bible, what we see is that this word world, which is cosmos in the Greek, and you're probably like, oh, okay, I know some Greek. This is awesome. <laughs> Feeling so smart. You probably heard that word before. And it's just like the word it, you're familiar with. One of the meanings is the cosmos, the universe, every single thing that was ever created, right? That's the world. But it also means the dwelling place of man this little speck of dust that we all live on. And a third meaning is all of nature that is set in rebellion to God. It's this whole system, it's this whole, this whole world. And you know what? One of the most provable teachings of Christianity is this idea that the world is not the way it was intentionally made, that th there's something broken about this world. Yeah, there's a lot of beauty in it. 
that beauty actually points to a reality that gives us all types of problems with its brokenness. And so whether that be someone you really love passes away and you have that aching feeling in you like this is not the way it should be, whether that be you're living in a city and all of a sudden there's a hurricane and it comes and it knocks your city down and you're homeless and you don't know where certain people are that you love and you're scattered all over the country, whatever it be, we see on a regular basis that this world is sick. And when you look at this scripture, one of the things that you see in here is that this world is passing away. It's fleeting. It's in trouble. But here's the funny thing about it. This idea of loving the world, this idea of being worldly is typically only considered a bad thing in the eyes of someone if they have been spiritually awakened. God has to open your eyes to that. Otherwise, you just dive in. Because you're like, yeah, okay, pastor, like the world isn't perfect, but I'm going to try to get whatever happiness I can in it. I'm going to try to do what I got to do to just help myself and get what I can. We look at this passage and we see, we see the different kinds of temptations that we're going to face in the world. What is the temptation of the world? And what we see is it's remarkable because all of these temptations, these three temptations of the world, line up with the great temptation of our Lord Jesus. So before Jesus started his ministry, if you remember, he was caught up and he was taken into the desert to be tempted. You remember the temptations? He's hungry. He's been fasting. There's been no food out there. The devil comes to him. He says, hey, listen, why don't you turn that rock into a loaf of bread? And so what we see there is right in this passage, the things of this world, the desires of the flesh or the lusts of the flesh, which include, it, it includes just all the things my body thinks it needs. It includes over desire for women and men. It includes when you cross me, I need to get revenge and I need to punch you in the throat. It's all of those desires that come from within us. And then we see another temptation. We see that Jesus is taken to some high mountain and they're overlooking all the power, all the kingdoms of time and space. And they're looking at it and Satan's saying, listen, just bow to me and all of this can be yours. You know what's funny is that a lot of churches will have on their website or they'll have, um, you know, on their logo or whatever, they'll quote the scriptures and they'll quote this very text and it'll say, just bow down and worship me and all you desire will be yours. 
But what's terrible about using that quote is that that's actually the words of Satan tempting Jesus. <laughs> Context matters. Context matters. And so it's, 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 it's horrible that a church would take this, this phrase from Satan and kind of put it out there as if this is something Jesus ever said. You know, Jesus never said, if you worship me, I'm just going to give you everything you ever wanted. He just never said that. In fact, he was always saying the opposite. He was always saying, you want to come follow me? Take up your cross, deny yourself, and come after me. And then we see that in this text, we see... Sorry. The lusts of the eyes, the desires of the eyes, everything that Jesus could have, everything that he could have. And then the final temptation, Satan takes Jesus up to this high, high place up on the top of the temple. And all the people are there, right? All, the, all God's people are there. And he says, why don't you jump down and then why don't you have your angels catch you? Right? And we see Satan tempting him on the very pride of what he has, who he is, and the pride of his own life. In this test, we see that, that worldliness will not last. In this text, we see that, but, but, but God's will does. You know what's awesome is that we start to see that Jesus himself has some way to overcome worldliness. Jesus himself has some way to resist all the temptations that he's tempted by. And he's giving us a bit of a clue because, you, you know, if you remember the answers, he's saying, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. He says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, your maker. And you shall not worship anyone but the one Lord. Now, in this text, we have an imperative, don't love the world. And there is this reality that we need some level of detachment if we are going to have a true spirituality, if we're going to have a real, true, life-changing faith. But it's not by turning the love dial down. It's not just by universally turning down. Like when we do this, the mixer, right? If we turn down the game, we turn down the main sound. Well, then everything is muted. Everything is muted. That's not how we do it. One of the things that we have to be helped with when we read this passage is understanding this concept, this biblical word, hate. Understanding that whole concept. It, Right in the center of scripture, and one of the big stories is, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I, what is it, hated. 
Now, if you actually read the story and you see what, he, what God does and the deal he makes with Esau, you realize that God actually showed a whole lot of favor to Esau, gave him a nation, promised him prosperity, you know, promised him protection and all kinds of stuff. But he wasn't Isaac and he wasn't going to be that one family that would bless all the families of the earth. He wasn't going to be that one ancestor to the Lord Jesus himself who would save the entire world. And so biblically looking back on it, in that sense, yeah, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. I'll give you another example. Jesus said a lot of hard things that we tend to kind of forget. We, we like to come to me when you're weary and heavy laden, right? And I will give you rest. We love that kind of stuff. But Jesus said a whole lot of stuff like, if anyone doesn't hate his father and his mother and his brother and his sister, they're not worthy of me. And, and, and we read that and we're like, what is going on? What's going on? First of all, we have to understand what this means biblically. And one of the things that it means biblically is to refuse to choose one over the other. I remember when we went to Africa and I remember hearing things exactly like this. What do you hate? Your kids? Like why would you bring your kids to a third world country? What do you hate? You hate us? You're not going to let us see you? You're not going to let us see your kids? Now, did we hate our family? No. No, but we loved God in such a way, and we were trying to follow God in the path that he was laying out for us, that sometimes when you do that, your love for God is going to make it look like you hate people in your life. Now, some of you have experienced this where you've had a group of friends. You've had a bunch of people that were in your life and you start living for God and you want to love God and you want to do the things that God's called you to do. And now all of a sudden, it's difficult for you to spend all that time you used to with that old group. And they're going to look at you and they're going to be like, you changed. Why you hate us now? And you don't hate them. You, you're not like, you know, I wish bad things for you. You wish good things for them. You love them. You care about them. You're concerned about them. That's not what we're talking about. We, you know, this is our father's world. We love this world. We care about this world. We enjoy this world. But, but the way we love God, man, we don't love this world. This world is not our home. We're only passing through. We're strangers and aliens. Really, at no point, no one can serve two masters. Amen. There is no room for all this, you know, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I'm a Christian, but I love smoking weed all the time. I'm a Christian, but I'm going to be married, but I'm also going to have, you know, some side guy, some side girl. Like, no. You, you cannot love the world 
and have the love of God living in you. You can't. And we have this shadow of religion that we like to talk about. We have this false idea of heaven where all the commercials we've seen and all the movies we've seen, they show heaven and it looks like a place where the fog machine was left on a little too long. Everybody's sitting around playing harps. Everybody's a ghost. You can put your hand through them. And you guess what? Guess who's not there ever? God is not there. And it's always in black and white. And the whole entire point of all these images is to show you that this place is mind-blowingly boring and not real. And in some ways, we do that with our spirituality right now, with our Christian life right now. Listen, in this life, we're not called to live in this sort of ethereal constant peace where we're just detached from everything. We just turn down the volume. We turn down the color tint and everything's black and white and we just don't care about things. Like that's what I want to warn you against. After we preached for week after week after week and don't make an idol of your family. Don't make an idol of sex. Don't make an idol of your politics. Don't make an idol of your money, whatever. Or your lack of money, whatever. We're not called to be all zen and just turn it all down and act like none of this matters. But we're also not called to be like Clint Eastwood, right? We're not called to just have like a mean look on our face and be like, I don't love the world. And I don't like the things in the world. You know what? And that includes you and you and you, (laughs) right? And get off my lawn. love of the world and worldliness. It has lots of different species, lots of different flavors. Do you realize that there's a worldliness in dealing drugs and a worldliness in using drugs and they're like completely different? (laughs) They're not the same at all. Not saying you can't do both, but you know what I'm saying? Like there's a worldliness that your life looks like and there's a worldliness in having a a downtown condo and for yourself and running through all kinds of men or women and all that. And there's a worldliness in looking for the next woman that has a disability check that you can mooch off of, right? And there's a worldliness in having a mansion out in Sicklerville with a creek in your backyard. There are so many ways. There's cleaned up worldliness and there's ugly, poverty-looking worldliness, right? But there are so many different ways where we can entirely base our lives around ourselves and the created things of this world, and we've cut God out entirely. See, this is worldliness. It's just basing our lives on anything in his created world versus basing our lives on the one who created the world. Worldliness is basing our lives on anything created in this world and godliness is basing our lives on the one who created this world. Worldliness says your idols are not a problem. So this is what you do. This is like, this is some example, like worldliness saying, You know, all those things you talked about, 
all those idols. Let people have their idols. Let people have their, their, their happiness. They say, my body, my body's not a temple for God to dwell in, for him to own every hair of my head and all that. You know what? My body is a fun house. And if I want to go to the buffet and just go nuts, if I want to, you know, be with 10 different people this year, then my body's a fun house. It's not a temple. Say, my feelings, you know, I have to just be true to my feelings. I feel a certain way. I got to do it. I wouldn't want to deny myself. I wouldn't want to deny who I think I am. My family, I'm going to live for it. My family's great. Or maybe your family's not great and you want to run away from it. Your politics, you're always like, I got to win. <laughs> I got to win. <laughs> I'm right. <laughs> my money. And, you know, this is a great idol because people with money can be like, ah, you guys down there with your petty gods. I'm up here, and when I get sick, I go to the hospital. I, when anything happens to me, I'm secure and I'm safe. And the person with money actually thinks they're killing it. They think they're killing it. But they're lost without God. So how can Christ overcome our world? This is what the sermon is, right? How do, we've already talked all this time about our idols. And now we're going to talk about how does Christ overcome these things? How do we begin to loosen our grip? Because you know what? If you are a worrier, you are an idolizer. If you're someone riddled with worry and anxiety, it's because you are worldly. And I'm not saying that to beat you up. I also struggle with every one of these idols. <laughs> right? And I want to be free from them. And I want it to be less of me and more of God. I want the love of the Father to be in me. So that I am not captured and beat up and imprisoned by worry. Imprisoned by seeking pleasure just for myself. By thinking I can make my life work without God. By thinking I can hang my hope on these counterfeits and realizing they're going to disappoint me. So there are, here, here you, have, you have two options. There are two options in your effort to try to get loose from these idols. And one of them is legalism. One of them is legalism. Have you ever heard that word before? I had a friend who went to, he went to a Bible college in, at Wheaton, which I think is in Chicago. And it's a, it's a pretty big school, pretty well-known Christian college there. And this was in the 90s, and there was all these revivals happening. And people would, the college kids would pile up into, into buses. And they'd go to a church downtown. And then they would come back. And it was every single night of the week. And they were having these incredible experiences of worship, convicted of their sin, overwhelmed by God. And they opened the door of the buses. And there's these guys from Holland who were visiting teachers, teaching Old Testament. 
and they were sitting on the steps of the library right where they were dropping these kids off and these guys from Holland were doing as old guys from Holland would do and they're lighting up their pipes <laughs> and these these college kids just came out of like a five-day straight church service come out of the bus and they look at these guys with their big beards back in the 90s you know you know it was like edgy to wear a beard and you know they they look at they look at them and and they're, they're confused <laughs> legalism is a crazy focus on the outward appearance and a list of things that you do and you don't do like smoking a pipe right on a college on a christian college campus and I wonder what the, I wonder what the, those Dutch professors thought about the college kids. If they saw any worldliness in these American students. I'm sure they did. It would be interesting to hear their side of things, right? Because we all have our lists of our do's and our don'ts. Everyone has their list. Don't say you don't. You do. Even if your list is like, well, I don't judge people. Okay, right there, you, you, you just started a list. <laughs> we all have a list. And legalism will not be the thing that takes us home. It won't be the thing that will loosen our worldliness. Legalism confuses godliness and discipline. You know, godliness and discipline aren't the same thing. Like, you could have a drill sergeant type father who makes you read the Bible and makes you go to church. And instead of on Christmas, instead of getting gifts, you go to the shelter, the soup kitchen, and you serve meals to other people. And you can have a father who has discipline, but is that father godly? And why isn't that Father Godly? What's the missing ingredient? It's love. Discipline's important. Discipline is important, but it is, it is nowhere near as important as godliness, which includes so many things, including discipline. Legalism can lead to unending disappointment because it's got no power to change you. It's just you're just adding all these rules to your life. And you don't have to be religious to be a legalist. There's all types of diets and all types of fix my life TV shows and all types of self-help gurus and books out there. And it's just like, well, if you just followed these temple simple rules, if you just did X, Y, Z, you'd be happy and your life would be right. But it doesn't work. Legalism creates so many atheists. And religious wingnuts, <laughs> right? Because it's like we're just obsessed about these rules. And then people growing up in those families are like, this is oppressive. And it's like that, that sermon that I preached on the idol of religion where we read from Matthew 23 where Jesus said to the religious leaders, he said, you put a weight on people that's unbearable and yet you won't even lift a finger 
to help them. Legalism just wasn't the path that Jesus gave us. So what is, what is, and this is, we come to the, the, the thing, we've come to the close here, replacing love for the world with the love of the Father. That's how you fight worldliness. That's how you fight worldliness. And we already know about this. We already know about certain things we love in this world actually make us better people. And certain things we love in this world will actually give us the strength to do what's right. How much more the love of the Father. Let me give you an example. I really like, and I would say I love watching certain shows on TV at night. Give you another example. My wife really doesn't always like that, but she likes and loves me enough to stay up with me to watch those shows, right? Now, I also love God's word, and I love all of you where I'm not going to stay up all night and not write a sermon. There's all these competing loves. There's all these competing loves. Eagles is about to start, right? Eagles and, and uh, yeah, go Eagles. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> You're excommunicated. <laughs> um, so yeah, Eagles is gonna start up, right? I love time to myself. I, 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 you know, which is funny, I'm a pastor, so I got a lot of time out and visiting people a lot, right? But at the same time, I love to be home, you know, by myself sometimes. But then I really like the Eagles. So in the next few months, I'm going to be spending a little more time watching the Eagles and not being by myself. You see, you see the... The only way to break yourself of lesser loves is by a greater love. I knew this guy, he was a mechanic, and he was hooked on heroin. He had a baby, and he was high. He was holding the baby, and he dropped the baby. He didn't go to rehab, he didn't go to meetings. He's been clean for 20 years. Because he realized somewhere that he loved this kid more than he loved dope. I mean, I think most of us, if we go far enough out in the family tree, and sadly for a lot of us, we barely have to go out of the branch, we find somebody in our family affected by addiction. And I know I've got family that have loved drugs more than anything else in life. And they've been willing to lie, steal, and hurt people for those drugs. I remember vividly visiting um, Listen, this one guy not that long ago, we're sitting in his living room, and he said, 
it was, it was a weird thing to say. He said, the fruit of my rebellion has become the greatest blessing in my life. What was he talking about? He was going all around the world and just throwing parties and doing, he was a DJ and he did all, he was just having fun. And you know what? Along that path of him, of him like living like his body was a fun house and living like he had to follow his feelings and seeking happiness in this world. Along that path, he got someone pregnant. And he left all of that partying to go drive a forklift and work third shift. And he says, this is the biggest blessing in my life. Human nature demands something to master us, to rule us. And we have to be ruled by Jesus. And the thing is, if we are going to be freed from the loves of this world, we need the love of the Father. We need the love of God in us. And to get there, we have to profess we have, to, we have to come to the gospel. We have to, we have to believe the good news. And there's a difference, and the difference is the difference between literally heaven and hell. There's a difference between professing something, professing it, and actually possessing it. You can say all day long you're a Christian, and you can come to church and all that, but if you aren't actually depending on it, if you aren't actually trusting in it, it's just a thing. It's just a thing you say. It's not a thing you're living out. And some of you need to have a, a DTR moment with Jesus himself. You know what a DTR moment is? One time, me and my wife were hanging out. We weren't married yet. We're sitting in the diner, and I look over the table at my wife, and I say, so, uh, hey, uh, Christy, so what are we doing here? <laughs> and my wife is tough and smart. <laughs> and she looked right back at me and she says, yeah, uh, no way. <laughs> that's, that's your job. <laughs> you have to say what we're doing here. <laughs> so we had the DTR, we did define the relationship. And we defined it as, hey, we're a thing. We're dating. We're dating. We like each other. We're not just friends. We're dating. And what I want to say to you tonight is that Jesus Christ has made his intentions clear. He has done everything he could possibly do on his end to define the relationship. He broke into history 2,000 years ago, lived a perfect life. He hung on a cross he was beaten and he bled for you. He died for you and he rose again from the dead and he's reigning in heaven and he's doing all this for you. So Jesus has already defined how he feels about you. You're sitting at the diner and you're looking at him. He's the one that's initiated. He's the one that says, this is how I feel about you. I don't care about your moral history. I don't care about what you think, what you don't know about the Bible, what you do. I'm not impressed with your family or I'm not discouraged by your family. Jesus is looking at you and saying, I want to have a relationship with you. And it's your job to not sit on the fence 
forever. Now, we are all about, like, come ask questions. You articulate those questions, though. Ask those questions. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. Ask, and you will receive. You have to cultivate your faith. You have to cultivate your faith. And, you know, on with this last story. I remember many mission trips. Have you guys seen sometimes we've brought college kids here even we've had them in this room we've gone around and we've flyered and we've you know had kids work and clean homes and do all types of awesome things well for a really long time I've had students come either high school or college students and they would like sleep between the pews in a church like this and then they would wash cars and raise money to come. So they, they would pay <laughs> and get other people to pay so they could come and sleep on pews and stuff. And they'd start the morning. What do they start the morning with? They start the morning with like an hour of quiet time to be with God, to read his word. Then they would continue and they'd get like 90 minutes of teaching and we would teach them and preach to them. And then they would go wherever we sent them and it might be just folding clothes at a crisis pregnancy center so that young moms without the family support would have some clothes for the kids they're going to have. Or it, it could be going under the train tracks and convincing people who are shooting dope to come into rehab. Or it could be making sandwiches for homeless people. Or it could be cleaning out homes or, or, or shoveling the snow because, you know, you have a trip and, well, we had all these plans, but now we're just going to shovel driveways because it just snowed and we can't do anything else. But the point is, they didn't know what they were going to do every day, but they just went out and they served. And then they'd come home, more preaching, worship, more time themselves, and meals and discussions. And by Friday, after they'd been there all week, they were having this ecstatic experience, this joy. They had this joy outside themselves, serving others and loving others and loving God. But then the reality that, hey, we're going back home. We're going wherever we're going would sink in and they'd say, man, I got to go back to reality. I got I to gotta go back to my life. I don't want to go back. And they'd start to talk about, well, this is hype. You know, all these experiences, it's hype. And what I want to say is that the hype is not the joy that you have when you're following Jesus. The hype is not in the joy that you have when you worship every single day and you have music every single day in your life. The hype is not in serving other people, however you're going to serve. And sometimes it means, you know, doing stuff that stretches you and you didn't even want to do it. And it, it's something that you thought you never could do. <laughs> I mean, I know that Matt's had that kind of summer where, you know, he came for discipleship and he got dictatorship from me and Dylan, right? 
And, and, and he ran around, and he worked with these kids, and he went here and there, and he helped move this furniture here and that furniture there, right? But there's just joy. And what I'm trying to say is, we need to rearrange our lives so that our lives look a lot more like we're on a service trip, like we're on a mission trip, than to just say, give up, throw up our hands and say, well, there's nothing we can do. Our lives are lame and we have no joy, we have no power, we have no fellowship. It's like this, if I make for you steak dinner, and I know it's like, man, this pastor thinks he makes steak dinner. He, doesn't, he makes like, you know, stofers or whatever. Whatever you think I make for you, as I preach every week, you come here, you have a meal anyway. And then say Monday comes around and your day is crazy. And then Tuesday comes around and you pull out a psalm and you read a psalm. And then Wednesday comes around and the day is crazy. And then Thursday comes around and you, maybe you read a, a little portion from our daily bread or whatever. What's going to happen to you? Are you going to fight worldliness? What's going to happen is you're going to have your meal on Sunday night. You're going to come to church, have your meal, and then on, and you're going to last from that. And then Tuesday's going to come and you're going to have your little orange juice. You know, you're going to spend your five minutes reading the scriptures. And then by Friday, what's going to happen is you're just going to be like, Ugh. right? You're malnourished. The love of the Father is not dwelling in you. Do you get what I'm saying? Like you can't just have this little baby Jesus vitamin once a week or once a month and expect to live in the joy of the Lord. You have to rearrange your life. You have to say he is my savior. He's the best thing in my life. And then you'll have that joy that he promises. You have to cultivate it. You have to cultivate your relationship with God. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you that you are good to us. I thank you that you invite us to your table. Your word says in Revelation 3.15 that you stand at the door and you're knocking. That you're there already. But Lord, a lot of times we want to pretend like nobody's home. <laughs> And we want to go into another room. And we want to turn up the music. Lord, I pray, Father, that we would open the door. We'd let you into our lives. Even though it, we know it means you're going to say some stuff about the things we have in our home. We know you're going to have problems with how we live. We know that we're going to have to change some stuff. But, Lord, I pray, Father, that we would fight this worldliness that we would not love the world but that we would have the love of the Father living in us that we would believe that the world is passing away but the one who does the will of God will live forever Amen